Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 342 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new book, The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2018. And we've discussed previous volumes in this series back in episodes 177, 224, and 275. So definitely check those out if you missed them. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. And he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. The latest book he edited, Creatures of Want and Ruin by Molly Tanzer, a Prohibition-era fantasy about diabolical liquor, is out now. So, John, welcome back. Always good to be here. Then next up, we've got Carolyn M. Yoakum. She's a three-time Nebula Award finalist, and her short story collection, Seven Wonders of a Once and Future World and Other Stories, was published by Fairwood Press in 2016. Her short story, Carnival Nine, appears in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2018. So, Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And also joining us today is Charles Paysewer. He's a Hugo-nominated fan writer who runs Quicksip Reviews and contributes to the book Smugglers. And his short fiction and poetry have appeared in Strange Horizons, Lightspeed Magazine, and Beneath Cecil Skies. His short story, Rivers Run Free, appears in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2018. So, Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so let's start off with John. And so, John, the guest editor for this year's volume, this fourth volume of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, was N.K. Jemison. So just talk about how she got involved with the project. Uh, sure. I mean, yeah, just like any year um, where we're doing Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, uh, you know, we have to come up with a guest editor. And, um, you know, you try to find somebody who can f- uh, fill a certain number of roles. You know, you, you want them to be able to have good taste and they're going to pick interesting stories. They'll have a, a specific point of view and everything. Um, but then with Nora, it was just like uh, one of those cases where it's like, I felt like we had to get Nora. It's like she was conquering every aspect of the genre at, the, at that time. Um, you know, since, uh, you know, since we actually picked her, like, you know, the, the year that, uh, just this past year, you know, she won her third consecutive, uh, best novel Hugo, which no one has ever done before, uh, won three in a row. Um, and, you know, her trilogy got nominated for all sorts of other awards. I go, at, I go on at length, uh, describing how she's, uh, stood astride the genre like a colossus uh in my introduction um but uh given that uh she's clearly like the face of the genre at the moment i thought it would be wonderful to have her as guest editor and so thankfully she said yes um and you know i I, i've known her for many years uh you know she um she lives in in the new york area and you know i used to live there um and so i would see her out at uh social events in new york at kgb fantastic fiction things like that um and uh, so, yeah, it was just really great to have her on board. And I mean, I know that she's very busy. I mean, part of the reason she's not on this panel is because she had a has a book deadline that she was, you know, struggling mm-hmm. to, you know, get everything done in time for. Did that um, present any challenges for this anthology? Did she have uh, like a schedule that you guys had to work around? No, no. I mean, uh, she knew about it far enough in advance that uh, she had it blocked out on her own schedule so that she didn't uh, run into any issues. Um, yeah, we've been fortunate with that so far with, uh, the guest editors not really running into any sort of, uh, time constraints on, on their end. Uh, um, you know, I, I, I like to think that the system is set up in such a way that, uh, you know, once you know that you have to do the thing, uh, it's hard to, uh, you know, get things too off track. Um, cause, you know, the guest editor has, 
uh, about uh, about forty five days to uh, to read all the stories and, and come up with the uh, the top twenty that go in the book. Um, you know, the, to to read the eighty stories that I give them and then to pick the top twenty that go in the book. Um, so uh, yeah, Nora didn't have any issues with that, and uh, yeah, I don't think any of the other guest editors had had any issues with it. Um, I mean, I guess there's every every uh, there's every possibility that someone will get some deadline dumped on them at the last minute um, that they weren't expecting, and 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 that will derail things um, for some volume, but uh, ha- hasn't uh, come up yet. So since this is the fourth time you've done this, is everything really down to a science now, or did anything unexpected come up, or were there any challenges or funny incidents that popped up or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of down to a science at this point. Um, you know, I did, uh, I, I won't name the story or anything, but I did have this one mix up with a, with a story that, uh, wasn't actually eligible. Um, and so I had to, uh, rejigger things at the last minute. It's like I thought I had, a, you know, so I had to just yank it out, out of uh, Nora's hands. Like, oh, no, wait. Uh, actually, that's not eligible. So, um, so luckily we caught that before it was, uh, any, any issue at all. Um, and the, the but, author, uh, the author never knew anything about that. Uh, actually, unfortunately, the author did. Oh. So, uh, you know, so that was awkward. I had to apologize. And, and, uh, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, cause it was one of those cases where I was like, ah, it's actually a 2018 story, not a 2017 story. Cause it was like the, you know, anyway, one of those situations. Um, and, uh, so obviously I felt really bad. I, I wish I could have figured it out before, before the author knew about it, but, um, uh, such such is life. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. So uh, so we're yeah. So we're joined by two of the contributors to the book, uh, as I said, Carolyn M. Yokum and Charles Pesuer. Uh So let's start off with Carolyn. Um, just tell us about how did you kind of um, what was the process of hearing that you had been selected for this uh, anthology. Um, so this is actually the second time I've been in the anthology. I was in last year's edition as well. Um, and both times, I think that I found out uh, via email from John, um, which is always exciting. Uh, this is a an anthology that is really exciting for me because one of my first introductions to short fiction was uh, the best American short stories uh, of this series um, that I read when I was a kid. Um, so it was it was pretty exciting to to hear from John that that my story had been selected for the book. I thought you were going to say that you read it in college, which was you know <laughs> that's how I found out about. It. So you were a kid when you were, and you were reading best American short stories. Yeah, you know, um, so my grandfather and I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house when I was a kid had um, sort of a mishmash of books, and among them were a bunch of the old Reader's Digest classics and also these best American short stories. So I was probably, oh, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something like that, looking for pretty much anything to read because that was my way. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was when I, when I first stumbled upon this series. So it was even before I really got into genre fiction that I was reading these. So. Wow. That's cool. And so, um, so what was it like having the story last year in? Did you, um, what sort of, did you get uh, any responses to that or just what was that like? Um, it was, it was pretty cool. I mean, these are books that are, you know, widely available in bookstores and other things. Um, so, so I mean, I've, I've had a lot of people tell me that, you know, oh, they saw this story in a, in a store, uh, like a bookstore at, or even at the airport or other places. And it's kind of cool to have something that's that widely distributed. And I've gotten good responses on both of the stories that have been in the, in the books. Yeah. So, well, so why don't you tell us about this year's story? Uh, just how did you come up with the idea? Um, so this story, um, Carnival Nine is based on, the idea of spoon theory, which is something that's pretty common in, um, in disability circles as a way of explaining 
uh, how you sometimes just don't have the, the energy, either the physical or the emotional energy to do everything that you need to do in a day. You only have so many spoons to use on various tasks. And I wanted to write a story where instead of something external to the characters, spoons were represented by something internal. Uh, and so I made these wind-up characters, these clockwork characters that had only so many turns to do things on any given day. And, uh, and from there, once I had sort of solidified that core idea, the story really sort of went off on its own. Um, it was an idea that just sort of grabbed me and went, which is often how my writing process goes. Right. So for people who haven't read the story, so there's, it's kind of in this house or, or sort of workshop with these different rooms. And there are all these clockwork people who live in the, who live in this, this house. And yes. there's this character called the maker who, who I imagine is sort of a human who uh, mm -hmm. winds all the characters up every morning. And uh, just depending on the quality of their materials and stuff, they have different, um, you know, different amounts of, uh, you know, momentum that they get out of, you know, so also he winds them somewhat erratically. It's not always exactly the same. Um, yes. But, but so these characters kind of wake up every morning and, and have to, uh, sort of ration the the energy that they've been given. Yes, that's right. They um they get a different number of turns on different days. And some people do systematically tend to get more turns and others fewer turns, but overall there is sort of a random element to it where you don't really have the same amount of energy every day for for a number of reasons. So are these kind of clockwork characters is this something that you have liked yourself as a reader? Um I mean, I, I've been drawn to Clockwork before. It's got kind of a steampunk feel to it. Um, I actually have another story that I, I had come out this year that was Clockwork Animals. So it is it is a theme that I return to from time to time. Um, I think that there are a lot of parallels that you can draw. I kind of like to often distance things from the real world as a way of getting um, a, a different perspective, a different way to look at things that maybe you're too close to to see all the angles when you're when you're thinking about it, like with real human characters, for instance. Did you have a lot of like dolls or action figures or uh, I don't know wind up toys or anything like that growing up? Um, not really, actually. I did have. I mean, I had some dolls, although it was not something that I was particularly into as a child. I I honestly was kind of a tomboy and spent a lot of time outside, um, more so than than indoors playing playing with dolls and wind up toys. But uh, I did like to uh, to build things out of Legos and other other sort of building toys. But you never had any of those like super fancy kits where they have like motors and I don't know, you know, uh, pulleys and stuff like that. Oh, you know, I think I did actually for a little while when I was a kid have those. You could build little robots with different. I have, I think I built one that was kind of spider like, and it it had sort of yeah, you could put all the gears together and all of that. I think I did do that for a little while. There was a phase where I did that as a kid, hmm. but it wasn't really a direct inspiration for the story. Yeah. Well, so John, do you want to say? Uh, do you remember um, how you came across the story and kind of what made you want to um, in include it on your list of 80 choices? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, this one was in Beneath Cecil Skies. Um, and it was one of those where when I read it, I, I immediately uh, had it just on the on, on my short list of, of or I guess technically my long list. But <laughs> it, it, in my mind, it was in my short list because uh, I, I just I just loved it um, uh, when I when I encountered it during my reading. But uh yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, *Beneath the Skies*. Actually, both of these stories appeared in *Beneath the Skies*. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the magazines that I, um, you know, always read every story and uh, look at every year. Uh, very. Closely. You're saying both Carolyn's story and Charles's story appeared in *Beneath right, the Skies*. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm correct, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and yeah, you know, I mean, it's a magazine that, uh, uh, I think these might be the first two stories from Beneath the Skies that made it into the book. Um, I know I've had stories on the long list before, on the, on the, uh, you know, the top 80 list before. Uh, but I think these might be the first two stories that actually made it into the book. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I said, it was just one of those, like, oh, you know, obviously this one's going, uh, this one, this one's going to the guest editor for sure, kind of, kind of stories. And so, Charles, have you you've read have you read Carnival Nine? Yes. So, what did you do? You have any uh, any <laughs> thoughts about it? Well, so um, it was actually one of my favorite stories of the year as well. I mean, um, I run a, like a little award thing myself, the Sippies, for my blog, and it won the sort. There's different categories. Well, let's so, uh, let's, wh- let's remind people. So, your your uh, blog is called Quick Sip Reviews, and that's why it's the the Sippies. Correct. The sippies. And I did a little image thing where they're little like sippy cup awards. <laughs> um, but that one, that story is, um, just one of my favorite of the year. It won the, um, uh, I, I think it's like, um, excellent making me ugly cry in <laughs> award because that one like I, I you you read it and it's just such an emotionally devastating story because of how it takes you know this character from childhood to adulthood and all of the changes that go by and the way that there's that sort of like great hope that because of like the um extra turns that there's going to be some sort of grand adventure or some sort of better life and how it sort of takes that idea and plays with it and twists it and just really shows how the the people having the different turns can go in in different ways and it has that core of people helping people and compassion and I got very emotional reading it the first time, and it's still just a wonderful story. Well, thank yeah. you. <laughs> I completely agree with that. I mean, I also found particularly the ending just had a real emotional impact on me. And it like the, it, the, the story, it really made me think, you know, am I using my time wisely mm-hmm. in my life? You know, I mean, I, it really made me. And of course, like. I'm doing, I'm the host of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. So I'm like, oh, of course I am. I'm, this is like, well, it's going to be better than that. But uh, I did think about that for a couple minutes, you know. Um, I guess it's, I hope it's not spoiling too much. Can we talk about, Carolyn, the um, the child character? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, so the, the protagonist in, in the story has a great mainspring. So she, as Charles was just sort of saying, uh, thinks she's going to have all sorts of this adventurous life. She's going to be able to do so much more than other people. And, um, you know, finds herself or, you know, becomes the mother of a, or I guess sort of constructs a a child for herself. And the child um, ends up with a a very weak mainspring and so has very serious um, limitations on on what he's able to do and what he'll be, what his lifespan will be and what he'll be able to accomplish in his life. And she has to, you know, sort of sacrifice a lot for him. Um, Did that idea come to you right away or did that? develop at a certain point as you were writing the story? Um, This was very much a story that unfolded for me as I was writing. And so I didn't have that in my head as I started. It was more the story about Z. And as I went along, um, you know, I'm a parent myself and I think about, you know, the different challenges with parenting and the ways in which you have to balance your time 
and your energy and, um, you know, the things that parents do for their children. And as I was writing, it occurred to me that this would be a, a good way to take the story, that it would be a, a really meaningful, um, thing to, to do in, in her life is to, um, is to have her work through, you know, how she wants to use her turns. So were you like sobbing as you're writing the story or <laughs> is it more analytical for you? Um, for me, it's a little bit more analytical. I actually get more emotional when I'm reading the story than when I'm writing the story. And I think that some of it is just the process of writing is distracting enough from the emotions in the story that I tend not to get quite as immersed when I'm writing as I do when I'm reading. Yeah, yeah. So have have, have other people um, talked talk to you about the story or how it uh, affected them? Um, I, I've had a lot of t people tell me that this story is one that makes them cry. Um, and while it feels a little bit mean to be happy that I've made <laughs> people cry, um, as an author, you know, I, I do want to give people a, a, an emotional experience as they're reading. So it does, it does kind of make me happy when people tell me, oh, I read this story mm -hmm. and I was sobbing. <laughs> do you see this as a one-off or do you think you would ever return to this world of the clockwork characters? You know, I have actually never returned to a story world um, that I've finished a story in. So I probably won't return to this one just statistically. Uh, and I don't <laughs> tend to. I tend to be someone who chases the next big shiny idea rather than returning to something that I've already done. My brain sort of gets bored. Uh, I, I wouldn't rule it out. It's always possible that sometime in the future I would circle back to you know this or any number of other stories, but probably not. Mm -hmm. How about John? Did you cry reading the story? Because I know you're a very cold-hearted sort of person. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, no, I was actually thinking when Carolyn was talking, it's like I, I very rarely ever uh, like get super emotional when I'm reading a story. Like uh, I'll feel the emotional punch, but like it doesn't manifest in me like crying or anything. Um, but I bet if I if I heard like Carolyn reading it aloud or, you know, like as authors often do, they do readings of things like I bet I would cry if I was hearing it aloud um, or if I was actually trying to read it aloud to someone. Um, I've, I've caught myself doing that where uh, like I've d I do a reading at a convention. I'll ask for a reading slot at a convention, even though I'm the editor, I'll, I'll go and I'll and I'll read a story that I published in one of the magazines or something. And, and I'll go thinking like, oh, this this story is not particularly emotional. Um, and then I read a story aloud myself and then it's like, oh, and then it just really hits me in a, in a different way. Um, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's maybe, uh, like what you were talking about, sort of the, um, more analytical thing where it's like when I'm reading, I'm, I'm more analytical. Um, and, and I'll appreciate that it does have the emotional impact, but it just doesn't quite hit me in the same way. Whereas if, uh, I was just, if I was listening to it or something, uh, or if I was trying to read it aloud, which, you know, has both, both aspects have the more performative aspect to it. Um, I feel like I would probably react differently. Um, so, I mean, I guess I could listen to the podcast version on, on Denise Hill Skies and, and see if I, if I react differently. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I can't, I, I can't, I don't know if I actually can remember, uh, any particular story that, uh, that, that actually made me cry. Um, but, uh, I guess you're right. I am just cold-hearted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess that's interesting to note that there is a podcast version um, being ceaseless guys that people could just go listen to right now, or I, I guess don't like finish listening to this episode <laughs> first. But um. I mean, I assume they they don't do every episode, but I believe this one was. was yeah, it no, no, it was actually podcast. Um, and Tina Connolly did the reading. Uh, she's a good friend of mine, but also of the people who have read my stories, she tends to capture the voice that I'm going for um, more closely than a lot of other readers. Just I think because we're on the same wavelength a lot of the time. Mm. 
Have you read this story uh, like at a convention or anything? Yeah, I actually I've read it several times. It was it was up for um, some awards, and so I, I've been reading it sort of on the convention circuit. And um, so I have various linked selections that I've read, and I, I did at one point even read the entire story, which is about a fifty minute reading. Um, I had a bookstore reading slot to do that, so um, it's a it's a fun story to read. I can I can do a lot of fun emotion in it when I'm reading it. So then, is there not a dry eye in the house at the end? <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, I'm sure there are some people like John who just don't experience <laughs> <Yeah>. emotion. <laughs> well, sure. No, I said that if I was listening to it, I probably would cry. Okay. Um, all right, cool. So let's move on and talk to Charles about his story. Um, so, Charles, how did you come up with the idea for, for your story? Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a couple of things. Um, this one took a while to write. Um, and it was, it was sort of borrowing an aesthetic that I had liked, but hadn't worked for a couple of stories. Like I really wanted to do something that had sort of a steam Western feel and sort of a strangeness to it. And I didn't know exactly how to go about doing that. So so, sorry, when you say it took a while, like define a while. Okay. So I wrote a draft of it, um, like not a whole draft. I wrote like two pages we'll say and then three months later i wrote a different two pages and then three months later i wrote what would become the first draft of the piece and then i the first draft was 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 kind of rough i'm actually very grateful to to scott andrews at Benicia skies for for giving me some feedback and giving me the chance to resubmit it after i had uh done it the first time because he sort of uh, at at first it was uh, a little bit more um formally disjointed it sort of jumped around in time surrounding when the character gets shot and uh his his advice was basically like well maybe just make it a linear story and (laughs) it did end up working much better that way so but from like the i i struggled coming up with like the the my hook into it and finding out where the story was going to start. And then once I got like that, the, the first section that's now the first section of the story was always the first section of the story. Once I got that, it sort of rolled uh, a bit easier, but the story was actually drafted not in order. I don't know if that helped it or not, but it was sort of a, a weird process. So it was, a, it was like what, like a year long process or something from start to finish? Yes, for this one. And so, sorry, so I interrupted you. So you were saying that you, you wanted to do something with kind of a weird Western vibe? Did I, do yeah, I have that like right? The, it's sort of a steam Western feel. I very much like that aesthetic, and it's something that I've sort of tried to do a number of times. And this one, finally, it sort of clicked and became a story. So are you a fan of, like, I assume you're a big fan of Wild Wild West with Will Smith? <laughs> uh? I... <laughs> If that's not like really odd to say, yes, yes, I. <laughs> so wh- uh, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> like, I, I just, I, I think that it's sort of uh, just cool. I guess I like that um, it takes sort of this uh, that it can take the aesthetic of of horses and sort of the I don't know frontier feels weird but it can recontextualize it in a way that sort of like loses i can't read westerns i just have no interest in it but i like 
Western aesthetics to some degree where it's sort of wait, wait, why, why can you not read straight Westerns? Just, I, I'm not entirely sure. I just like, I have no interest in most historical fiction. I'm very much like it needs to have some sort of spec quality for it to really get me into it because most historical fiction, just like I, 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 I don't know. It, it just does not connect with me the way that I would like it to. Uh-huh. So are, are there other weird Western things that you're a big fan of? So there's uh, the, the probably like the most direct inspiration for it comes from a video game called Wild Arms 3, which is perhaps odd. Like it's not a very popular video game, but I had it and I just really liked uh, how it used that sort of uh, feel to to create this world that was sort of like quasi broken down, quasi on the fringe of things, and there was just a lot of possibility there that I like. This is an old video. I've never, I'm not familiar. It was with like it. PlayStation Two. So probably now I don't want to think about how old it is because <laughs> that would make me feel old. But no, it's it's, it's PlayStation Two. Twenty no, twenty years old. I have no Jeez. idea. We're we're all so old. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the PlayStation One. <laughs> um, okay, but so so you have this 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 sort of love of the sort of um, underlying love of of weird Western sort of surreal materials, and then how did this specific character or sort of incident of the story come together? <laughs> So I am also to some degree a writer of um, romance and uh, in like paranormal romance, there's like a, a trope of like shifters and stuff and how that gets treated, which again, I like normally cannot stand shifter stories, but I was trying to find a way that I'd be interested in, in writing uh, something that had characters that could shift and river shifters just sort of clicked. And once I had it in my head, I had to write it. Right. So the characters in the story are, are rivers, like literal rivers, and they can uh, take human form and, and they're sort of, uh, did they have sort of light blue skin and, and yes. maybe a little bit elf like from what I remember. Um, and then you talk in the, in your author note about how some of the, um, some of the themes that you were grappling with in the story. Um, you say, uh, to me, the story was about exploring how oppressed communities are often set against one another, pushed to fight each other instead of banding together to resist the larger and more dominant power. Um, so could you just talk about how that theme sort of entered into the, your creative process? Okay, so the story is about these rivers who are searching for a power that will allow them to fight back against what's essentially this overwhelming technological empire that has found a way to like trap them, to enslave them, to 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 bend them into basically um, sources of power. So you know, there's dams and there's things like that where the rivers are basically forced to become power sources for this um, this empire that exists. And they didn't exactly know to expect this or to think that this was even possible, so it completely blindsided them to the point that they don't have a great chance to fight back against it. 
And so the group that the story focuses on is seeking this sort of like myth of the sea where they can go and bring it back. This even larger power that will help them to sort of uh, free all the ones that have been bound. And to get there, though, they have to cross a number of areas. And the first area that they have to cross is the dust. And the dust is this... Basically, it's become a desert because the rivers that were feeding into this area have all been stopped at the border uh, of the empire. And so all of the humans that were living in this area, uh, all the water's dried up and they're not exactly doing well. And the the thing I, I ended up wanting to explore with it was like, how does that affect both communities? Because... On the one hand, you have an opportunity for them to join together to help each other and to sort of push back together against this larger foe. But what the rivers find when they enter into a, a, a town that's in the dust is that that's not exactly what's happening, is that once people have found out that rivers can be used for power, they're basically like... A, a weapon and the people of the dust are spoiler alert seeking to to weaponize them as well and so they end up having to sort of use their resources to fight each other because of everything that's going on and the 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 empire in question really isn't very present in the story it's pretty much outside of it, but seeing how far the reach of what's been happening there extends and follows the rivers as they're trying to escape and trying to do something about it, it's that's sort of what I was trying to what I was trying to explore. Right. I think you did it really well. I mean I thought I thought this story was really, really cool and I it, it grabbed me right from the beginning. Um, so John, did you have a similar reaction to this story? Cause I know that you like weird Westerns. You did a whole anthology, um, dead man's hand of weird Western stories. Is this, did you know, like on page one, like, oh man, this is going in best American science fiction <laughs> fantasy. Right. Yeah. I, I don't remember uh, my initial reaction. I mean, obviously I thought it was one of the best stories of the year. Um, and, uh, Nora clearly really liked it cause she selected it to be first in the book. Um, and, uh, you know, that was something I, you know, I, I let the guest editor, uh, decide uh, on the on the order unless they want feedback or in in case anything you know the the toc order uh, looks weird or something but uh you know she she proposed putting it first and so she she obviously thought it was really great um but uh but yeah i mean you know i like you say i, I do love wood western uh, thanks for mentioning it i was gonna i was gonna throw in a little uh, cheesy ad for myself there but uh, <laughs> since you mentioned it it's a little less awkward um but uh like how yeah, would you no, how yeah, would you so compare this story with the stories in dead man's hand um, ah, man, I don't know. I've read like five billion words since I edited that book. I, <laughs> I don't really, <laughs> I don't really, uh, not too fresh in my mind, you know? I mean, it's, it, this seems like, I mean, it had a Western flavor, but it's not necessarily set in the American West. You know, it does, it, there's yeah. not like, I don't know, at least in my imagination, there's not necessarily like cowboy hats and six shooters and like that kind of stuff. It's, it's more at a subtextual level or something that it's a Western. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, uh, uh, speaking of uh, how long it's been since I edited Dead Man's Hand, I mean, I even this book, it feels like I edited it a million years ago. Um, like, you know, because I'm already 
I'm I, I'm in the process now of of finalizing my top eighty for the 2019 volume. You know, the best of 2018, and and so it's like all of these stories to some extent feel like they were so long ago that it, uh, making any specific comparisons to anything is uh, a bit beyond me. But um, well, fortunately, anyway. we have the author here, so we can just yeah, yeah. ask ask him. So, am, am I uh, am I correct in saying that? Um, do you think, Charles, that the the the, the Western element is more of a more is not on the surface level, but is a little bit below the surface. Well, right. It, it's it's something that sort of inspired it. It's not something that I wanted to sort of like make it a a western, but I liked the the sort of desertish horses. They do have like their guns are sort of that way. The level of technology is a little bit elevated because it's sort of uh, steam powered and things like that. But yeah, it's not like I was going out to write like a. a Western, Western. Mm-hmm. Let's get Carolyn in here. You've, you've, have you read you read the story Rivers Run Free? Uh, I have. In fact, this was one of the stories that I had read before um, it came out in Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. So um, it was on my radar when I was reading um, stories for award nominations and things uh, when when it was eligible. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. I, I really like, um, I'm really drawn to interesting ideas and interesting perspectives. Um, and I, so the idea of these sort of sentient rivers and the world that was built around them, I, I found it really um, intriguing. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, Charles, you mentioned that you do this blog. Um, wait, I have the name again. It was the SIP. Quick SIP Reviews. Quick SIP Reviews. Um, do you feel like Doing your own, like reviewing short fiction, does that change the way that you approach writing your own short fiction? Or are you like thinking like, how is somebody going to review this when you're writing or anything like that? Um, gosh, when I'm writing it, um, not, I'm very interested in reviews. It's not something I, I often like think about something. It's something I try not to think about when I'm writing things. It's not always something that's like completely successful because, um, then you sort of get into the trap of like, oh, are people going to like it? What will people say? And sometimes that is that's just not a, a good game to play. Um, I think that uh, reviewing sort of helps me to think about writing a lot. I think it's um, the reason why anyone would assign reading to students is to sort of get them to pay attention to how stories work and to see how writers um, go about crafting prose. And so in that sense, uh, I think it helps me to sort of like continually make myself think about how stories work for me and how I approach them as a reader and a which feeds into how I would go about sort of crafting my own stories. Where did the name quick sip reviews come from? Do you feel that most short fiction <laughs> reviews are just interminably long? <laughs> um, oh gosh. Okay. So it actually probably when I, uh, I started it in, in January of 2015 and it was shortly after I had, um, uh, started a review column uh, called The Monthly Round where I would take my favorite stories that I had read and I would pair them with alcohol. Um, so I would like take a story and I'd be like, this story feels like a stout to me. 
And then I'd sort of do monthly installments of that. So it sort of sprang out of that, uh, I guess, branding wise. Mm-hmm. I, I kept the whole sort of like quick zip. It was also supposed to be when I started short reviews, which I, I have a problem being brief. So at, at the beginning, they were only supposed to be like a couple of sentences. And now when I do a review, it tends to be 400 words. So they stopped being quite so short, mm-hmm. like quick. But the name stuck. I already had the logo that I didn't, <laughs> so it was a done deal then. You're going to have to change the name to just like Chug, Chug, Chug Reviews. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I really appreciate about Charles's reviews is that they, um, you know, he always passes a qualitative judgment on them or, you know, offers his opinion uh, rather than just describing the story. I mean, he does describe the stories as well to give you a little flavor, uh, a quick sip, as it were, of the story. Um, but, uh, yeah, just cause like a lot of short fiction reviews, it's like they're, they, they spend all of their wordage basically describing what the story is, but then they don't actually tell you anything about like, you know, did I like it or not? You know, and, uh, I feel like Charles is good about always giving, you know, at least a line or two or whatever of, of, of actual, uh, assessment, um, as well as, uh, describing the story. And, and he, I think he does a good job of, uh, you know, sort of wetting the appetite uh, to, to make you actually want to read the story um, instead of just being like, oh, OK, I read the review. I don't need to read the story now. You know, I, f- so. I feel like also, John, with a lot of short fiction reviews, like a lot of time the reviewer clearly didn't understand the story, but doesn't <laughs> want to admit it. So yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, this yeah. really yeah. vague sort of like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like you're saying, like, like, like individual plot details sort of pulled out and highlighted without any. Yeah, like. Anything that might r- reveal whether or not you actually really understood what was going on in the story or not. Mm-hmm. And of course, Charles uh, just doing it on his own. You know, it's his own blog. He can do whatever he wants. He, if he doesn't like a story or he didn't understand a story, he could just not review it. <laughs> you know, whereas like, you know, if you're, you know, you have a column somewhere else, I mean, maybe you're required to, you know, review X, Y, or Z. Uh, although I, I can't actually imagine anyone who does that. Like, it's like anybody who was uh, devoted to reviewing short fiction, nobody reviewed everything. So it's like, if <laughs> well, you, just, just if you didn't understand the story, just don't review well, it. I think that you you end up having to sort of narrow your focus. I, I review everything at the publications that I follow. That's sort of mm-hmm. my little limitation that I put on myself. So I always try to. And if I completely do not know what to think of a story, I I, I normally say that. Although normally in trying to tease it, to 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 normally in writing a review that is basically like i have no idea what this meant you do end up like stumbling across a reading that that is meaningful um i feel like if if as a reviewer like you you can't get the sometimes it 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 does sort of get weird because some short fiction reviewers don't get the like factual things correct Mm. about the story when they like completely like have missed something and there might be like a failure at that point to to engage with the story when they're just like this story was about that and you're like did we read the same story <laughs> but i think that that with reviewing it is important to sort of like to own your opinion and to sort of like get into it in that way because otherwise you know you can't pull it apart to be meaningful in a way that would help you as a writer sort of, sort of how i approach it at least 
As a writer, one of the things that I find really fascinating about both reviews and when people talk to me about stories afterwards are the the different things that people bring to stories that, you know, maybe I hadn't intentionally put in there or hadn't even thought about. But based on their own experiences, they'll draw that in as they're reading the story and they'll kind of make it into something new that's, that's meaningful to them, even if it wasn't what I was putting in on my end. Have you ever, Carolyn, have you ever done any short fiction reviewing? I haven't done any any formal reviewing. Um, I do the interviews for Uncanny Magazine. So um, I do, you know, close reads and analyze the stories in that way to kind of come up with the questions for the uh, for the authors, which in my mind, even though I don't write the actual review, the process for me is a little similar to what I would do if I was writing reviews, the way that I pick apart the stories for the interviews. Yeah. Okay, well, so speaking of uh, people not understanding stories, um, I was a little curious if anyone was not 100% clear on what was happening in the Samuel R. Delaney story. I'm (laughs) asking for a friend. Um, I, I felt like that story, um, I connected with a lot of the individual ideas and it had sort of a meandering style to it that made sense for the story, but that made it a little bit difficult to integrate everything together for me. Um, and it sounds like possibly your friend as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I, I actually, um, after reading it, I went and looked at reviews and all the reviews I looked at mentions not being totally clear exactly what the world building background in mm-hmm. the story was. I mean, most of the reviews I read liked the story. Some of them said, like, I think Rich Horton said it was, he thought one of the best stories of the year, but even he said, you know, you probably need to read it a couple of times. And even then, you may not know entirely what what was going on, mm-hmm. um, but so John, I mean, you you picked it for your your eighty of the best yeah. of the year, right? So what was it like? What was your um, experience reading and your thought process for selecting it? Uh, I mean, I basically agree with what you just quoted Rich Horton saying. Uh, I mean, it's just one of those stories where, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't explain to you exactly what's going on, everything in, in, in it, uh, especially now, not having read it in you know however many you know you, you know like a year a year ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that I, uh, I, I had the feeling that, uh, it was a story that was going to resonate for a lot of people. And I, um, it's just a story that was doing a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting different things that, um, I think, uh, even if everything doesn't quite a hundred percent make sense to you on that first read or even after multiple reads, it's, it's the experience is interesting enough that I thought it was worthwhile passing along to the guest editor. Um, and, uh, you know, it didn't hurt that it was by Samuel R. Delaney. Of course, the guest editor didn't know who it was by. Um, so, uh, Nora might have a different answer to that since she would have read it not knowing who it was by, although maybe she would be able to tell that it was by Delaney because it's, it does seem like a very Delaney story. Yeah, I was actually, you know, I was reading this, you know, I was reading this, I most read most of the fiction out loud just because it's more fun for me um, than just mm-hmm. sitting there silently reading. So I was reading out loud and my, my girlfriend was listening to it and she said, you know, who's the story by? And I was like, you can't, you can't guess. And, <laughs> uh, and she was able to guess, uh, you know, just from hearing a section of it that, it, that it was Samuel R. Delaney. So yeah, I mean, it was certainly, um, you know, had his, some of his trademarks in it. Yeah. Um, how about Charles? So did wait, you- did you cry? Did you cry when you read Carolyn's story? Uh, I, did you write it aloud? Uh, I did. Yeah. No. I I I, oh. I certainly got choked up. I don't know. I don't know if there were actual tears, but there there well, may have choked been. up counts. Choked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's close enough. Um. But but yeah. So Charles, did you um? What you think of the um the Samuel Delaney story? Um. So I might be odd in that I don't off. I don't always try to make sort of like a literal sense of like what is the world building going on in this story, mm-hmm. and I think my 
approach to the story. I love the story. Um, I love the way in which the relationship works in the story. And I feel like that was a, a large part of what was going on. That sense that when they would like ask each other or when they would say like, I don't know why we're together or why are we together? And then it would always be like, well, we're used to each other or, or, you know, we just are. And how what they said in that way was one thing, but the feeling sort of went much deeper than that, where they weren't just used to each other, where was, there was this like deep affection that was going on that you see when the, the one character, um, I guess, spoiler alert, dies and just the, the grief that happens there. And it's uh, like a very powerful way of doing that. And I think that it's reflecting in the world building how in some ways we the the characters don't even really know exactly what's going on like the the different places that they go there is a, like a even they don't quite understand the mechanisms of it and yet sort of why are they still there why are they keep on doing it well is it that they are just used to it you know and aren't questioning it and i feel like it sort of parallels in that way where it sort of plays with the what happens when it goes away and sort of how people can become familiar with each other and intimate. Right. So, so the story is told very, from a very close point of view from the protagonist of the protagonist. And since this world is all he's ever known, uh, he doesn't really comment on the things that to us would be unusual. And so he's, he's mostly, he's living his life and he's focused on, on his own sort of day-to-day concerns and we just know that there's something sinister going on, but we don't know quite what it is. But it's it somehow involves gender segregation, and it somehow involves population control. Um, but the exact details, at least on one reading, to me are, are are still kind of unclear. And I'm not sure they're really meant to be clear in the story. I mean, I think part of the point is that the the characters embedded in the story don't really have all the details and can't sort out all of this information, and that. It's hard to know what's really going on in this particular world. And the reports you get are, you know, from these various um, various people's perspectives, but you don't really know what's happening. Um, yeah, so right. I, I just I feel like I feel like maybe you're not supposed to really know for certain all of the details of what's actually going on just to have this sense that it's ominous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting in his author's note on the story. Um, I don't know if I did I write it down, but but Delaney says something to the effect of this is his attempt to write a post Trump science fiction story or cyberpunk story, something like that. Um, and that was something that came up. There were at least three um authors, um, Charlie Jane Anders and E. Lily Yu as well, who mm-hmm. explicitly say in their um author's notes that Trump, uh, you know that their story was like, like somehow a, a response to Trump being president. Um, is that something that you saw? I mean, it was interesting, John, because uh, in our last last year, our, our panel mm-hmm. on this, um, it was a bunch of stories that people could not have known that Trump would be president when they wrote them. But there was still this mm-hmm. sort of sense of uh, impending doom or something. Um, whereas yeah. now it's like the doom has fully impended. Uh, mm-hmm. did, is that something you saw a lot in the? the stories that you were, um, you know, going through, um, this year, the short stories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think the batch that, uh, you know, the, the, the 2017 batch, uh, definitely was full of stories like that. And then the batch I read in 2018 also has been like that. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, when, 
the world is in turmoil, no, regardless of what form of turmoil, uh, that always filters into fiction, and the anxieties of writers uh, gets channeled into their fiction. Um, I, I mean, at least I think the the better stories that tends to it tends to be what happens. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm not not surprised, uh, and uh, this has been, and you know, the Trump presidency has been such a disruptive um, world event that it's like. I mean, I, I, I typically had not been a person who, you know, watched hours of news every day. And it's like, you know, <laughs> since he's become president, I've been like watching like at least an hour or two of, of news coverage every day and like keeping track of like Twitter all day, like for any breaking developments. So it's like, uh, yeah, that, I, I that can doesn't understand. sound necessarily healthy. <laughs> no, uh, I don't think it is, but I can't help myself. Um, I, it is healthy in a way that uh, I'm doing exercise while I do most of the listening to the to the news stuff, um, or at least half of it. Um, so, so at least I'm getting some some exercise as opposed to uh, you know just sitting at my sitting on my couch watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's healthy in that way, but not mentally not healthy. You're correct. Yeah, I, I want to mention this Elilu story, that was which was one of my favorites, and it's a very it's a short story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it kind of has to me a little bit of the um, Damon Knight to serve man kind of. You know, mm-hmm. like a short story that packs a punch like that. And it's about, yeah, it's like um, uh, humanity makes first contact with aliens who arrive, but then they turn out to be sort of desperate refugee aliens in need of help. And um, and this just totally turns people off. They're not interested in helping. And it's a um, first-person plural um, story, you know, point of view. Um, and there's various twists as the story goes along, all compressed. And so, as I said, a very short story. Um, I think that's a, that would be a really good one. It's, it's a quick read and it's, you know, has a real punch. And if you just want to pick up the book in the bookstore and, and read one story and see if you like it. Um, yeah, that, that one was one of my favorites as well. Yeah. Um, Carolyn, do you want to add anything? Uh, about sure. That? I mean, I, I, I actually, I, I would like to say that, uh, Lily is a fantastic writer and I often feel like she is overlooked. Um, some of her stories don't get the attention that I would expect. Um, but she writes really beautiful, really clean stories. Um, and this one, um, I liked a lot of the ideas that she raised about, um, you know, who people believe and what makes, what makes people act the way they do the selfishness sometimes that comes out. Um, so the, the contrast between the, the wretched aliens and the beautiful aliens I thought was, was really striking. And I thought it was a beautiful story. Mm hmm. Hey, but Charles, do you have any uh, thoughts about um, the Elu story or the Charlie Jane Anders story that I just mentioned? Um, well, uh, I like them both. The 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 U story is one that I had um, read through through the year. That was when mine like found it at, at the time and really liked it. And I, I do like the sort of. I like the the perspective that it uses because I feel like it brings the reader into that that's that feeling of culpability in the end that's sort of like the the damning uh culpability that happens when when you're forced to be a part of that that we and uh have to be part of the 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 group think that goes on in that where uh, there's the moment where the one person in in Germany is like uh but wait and starts questioning and everyone just like shuts her up and doesn't let her say anymore and just lets what happens happen. And I think that that was a really powerful moment. Um, the, 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 the story by Charlie Jane Andrews is one that I, I hadn't um, read 
before the the anthology but uh holy holy crap that one was just like a a, a punch to the face uh, going through that and i think it, it also looks at culpability um the character there that sort of uh is is doesn't want to think of himself as like part of the problem. He's a good guy. He's doing his job. He's doing all these things. He wants his friend. All of these very complicated feelings about it. And I think it gets it right in the end that, you know, fuck that guy. He deserves what he gets. And <laughs> so I do, I think that both of them do an excellent job of sort of like challenging the, the perspective of, of not taking action or sort of being complicit with evil. Right. Let's say what the Charlie Jane Andrews story is about. So there's a trans woman character and somehow it's, it's some sort of dystopian future where trans uh, trans people are being, I gathered, rounded up into these processing centers and they're uh, hooked up to cadavers. And um, so this character is, is being hooked up to a male cadaver and they're going to transfer her consciousness into the male cadaver. Um, and yeah, so it's just this really horrific thing. But I thought the, the author's note was really interesting because Charlie Jane is talking about um, the, the terminology of, of dead naming um, mm-hmm. trans people where you refer to them by the name that they had, um, you know, that they didn't pick for themselves that they had before. And, uh, and that this story sort of literalizes that, uh, that idea. Um, I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And it's such a powerful story story too. Um, it's, it's got so much of that, that sort of raw anger to it. Um, and it was, it was really emotional to read. Um, it just, it just had so much of that. I mean, it's just horrific and, you, you get so much of the anger that's there, you know, um, because of these horrific things that are happening. And then to see someone sort of denying their responsibility and saying, well, you know, I'm doing it for these reasons and those reasons. It's, it's very interesting because it does have sort of similar underlying ideas about, you know, how people can just kind of stand by while these things happen, um, as the Elily You story, but the perspectives are so different and the tone is so different. Um, so it's, it's an interesting contrast. And it's interesting, too, because um, E. Lily Yu, in, in her author note, said that this sto- writing this story is, quote, as close as I get to pitching a brick through a window. Hmm. Um, yes, it's and, a very Charlie- polished brick. <laughs> and Charlie Jane, as well, talked about how much just anger and outrage there was behind her story. But then she was talking about also how much she wanted to use humor and um, sort of whimsy to um, to make the story not hold the reader at arm's length, but to mm-hmm. to to you know, make it approachable enough for people to um, sort of relate to or, or inter- interact with the anger. Um, which I think is a good approach. So John, do you have anything you want to, you want to add here? Um, I, I mean, not in particular. I mean, I, I obviously I thought, I love both those stories. Um, well, just one, one interesting thing uh, sort of in terms of best American and, uh, and dead naming uh, that, Charlie Jane's story got me thinking about um, bylines of people who published under their original name and then they transition and then now they have a new name. And so there's all this there's all this inadvertent dead naming that happens because if you reference a story that they published before they transition. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to call it out to, to like, uh, make the problem worse. But, uh, you know, in, in the previous volume, um, one of the authors uh, published a story under their original name, and then now they've since transitioned. And so it's like, um, 
it was a story I published in Lightspeed, and so on Lightspeed we changed the name um, to to the to her new name. Um, but uh, but of course the book still has the old name because it's a book. Um, it's already been printed, and uh, so I, I just thought that was kind of a, a interesting thing I hadn't really thought about before. And and I, I mean Charlie Jane's story kind of weirdly uh, made me think of that. Um, I mean just because it talks about dead naming, I had heard the term before, but um, in the context of Best American, it got me thinking of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, um, Charlie, do you have any just thoughts? That, like, are there any stories that you have, like, an observation you wanted to make? Or did you notice any themes uh, among the stories or anything like that? Uh, well, there, there's a lot of, like, a lot of these stories, uh, I was, like, really happy to, to see them there because some of them were among, like, my favorite. Um, Carolyn's story was, like, one of my favorite that year. Um, the You Will Always Have Family was, like, my favorite horror story um from the year and so i was like really happy that 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 showed up there just because it has like this great i love the the triptych style that goes on in it and the way that it sort of like circles around family and all of these harms being done and it just had like a a sort of folklore meeting this very family drama thing going to it that I love. So that was one of the stories that I was very super happy to share a table of contents with because that was like, yay. Um, but well, actually, let me, let me jump in there. Cause uh, I'll, I'll talk about that story a little bit because um, there were two stories in the author's notes that the authors mentioned that they, that sort of came out of the Clarion workshop. And that was one of mm-hmm. them. And I think, John, I, I think this author, Kathleen Kayembe, um, she mentions, mentions you in her author's note, right? Am I remembering that right? Uh, could be. I mean, I, I bought her first two stories, I, I believe. Were you, the, were you like one of the one. instructors at Clarion when she, was, when she wrote this story? Uh, no, but I, I did speak to the Clarion class. Uh, I did like a Skype session with them. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't remember what she said in the author's note. Um, but, uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't one of the instructors or anything. Well, she, she said basically that you told them not to reject their own stories, that that's, oh, your, that's yes. your job, right? Right. That, that is true. I did tell them that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, so this, uh, you know, I, I published this in Nightmare originally and, uh, it is one that, uh, Maybe because of that statement to her that she actually did still submit it to me. Um, I had done a thing where, you know, we were close to submissions, but then I, I did a, a limited, um, opening, uh, open submission period for, for the Clarion students so that, um, you know, so, so that I could get, I could get access to that, 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 uh, hot, fresh Clarion talent, you know, <laughs> fresh off the workshop. Um, and, um, and so the reason it was relevant in this case is because, well, that story is uh, actually longer than Nightmare's stated guidelines. It's uh, about 10,000 words or, or maybe a little bit longer. Uh, and Nightmare typically, are, you know, our guidelines say 7,500 or less. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, whether or not she had any doubts about submitting it because of, you know, she didn't think it was good enough or whatever, that's one thing. But uh, she also may have been considering, oh, well, I, I shouldn't even ask about this because of, of the word count. Um, and, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm glad that she did submit it to me. Um, and I, I hope that everyone does take that lesson into, into account, um, that, you know, that you shouldn't self-reject things. I just think it's interesting that two stories came out of Clarion and end up in best American science fiction and fantasy. Cause you would think that people at Clarion are sort of finding their feet or, you know, developing their skills aren't fully developed yet, but clearly, yeah. you know, top level stories are, are coming out of the workshop nevertheless. 
Well, it's such an intense experience, you know, and you're, you're surrounded by other writers and there are a lot of things that go on. I did Clarion West, um, which is much, much the same. Um, and I was newer, um, and I had just started writing at the time, but, um, but I think a lot of people come in with a little bit more experience now. And then to be in that environment, I think you get a lot of good stories out of it sometimes. Right. I, I do get the sense from some, I don't know how, how old, um, any of these authors are really, but I, I do get the sense you have people who've had life experiences and had careers and have maybe, you know, have had this whole, um, sort of, um, you know, store of, of, you know, uh, experiences and, and opinions and things. And, and then they've never really had the time to just sit down and express that. And so then, yeah, when, when, when they go to this six week long summer workshop, mm-hmm. all that stuff they've been thinking about for, for years and years just sort of flows out. And, and maybe that's part mm-hmm. of the. Yeah. I mean, the, it's, the it's definitely piece. a mix. I mean, there are some people who come in without a lot of publications and others who come in having published some stories already. Um, but either way, yeah, to spend six weeks just surrounded by other writers and focusing on writing is, is a pretty intense thing. It's, it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles, the other, the, the other clarion story was Cadwell Turnbull's, right? Is that right? Uh, let me look at my notes again. Yeah. Yeah. Ca- uh, Cadwell Turnbull. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which I also published in Nightmare. Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to say anything uh, about that story? No, I mean not in partic- not in particular. Just uh, you know, I you were mean, just bragging. Uh, you just want to talk about how yeah, good you yeah, are, yeah, how good yeah, your you taste know. is. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, um, in terms of uh, the life experience of the people and everything, like I, I know Cadwell. I think Cadwell's in like in his maybe he's either late twenties or early thirties, something like that, and he's a professor. Uh, and Kathleen, I think, is actually in, in her maybe mid twenties or something like that. She seemed she looks she looked pretty young when I when I remember seeing pictures of her. But um, and when I you know did the Skype session and everything, but um. So I think she's still, uh, you know, she's still pretty young, but, um, but yeah, Clarion definitely is a, is a quite a crucible that, uh, you know, if you could get to the end of it, uh, really turns out some, you know, or really, really levels up the writing, uh, of anybody who gets through it. Mm. Charles, did you ever do Clarion? Um, no. <laughs> Have you done uh, any, any workshops or anything? No. <laughs> You're just a, a raw talent. <laughs> well, you're an autodidact. You know that that's sort of what I've tried to to make reviewing into something that can work in lieu of, of that because I've just never had. Um, you know, I, I went. You know, I sort of graduated uh, college and entered the workforce, and since then it's been. Uh, I haven't had it. You know, I couldn't take six weeks off. I can't even really take a week off most of the time. So it's been. It's something I have to do from afar. Is I'm also in like the Midwest, upper Midwest, so there's not really exactly a lot of places that I could just go to. Mm. Um, there aren't an awful lot of of workshops uh, in the area, much less ones that are like cool with speculative fiction. I feel like you can find some workshops, but they tend to be out of. Uh, universities and they tend to be or at least university professors who who often aren't the most accepting of speculative work sure so so are there any science fiction authors in your i don't know like five mile driving radius that you know (laughs) um just i i guess friends really um so yes uh, it it depends i i mean my my partner is also a, a speculative fiction writer and uh we we started a um like a, a 
writing group with another friend of ours and so we try to sort of keep keep ourselves honest that way mm. can you can you say like where where exactly you live or do you not want to i live in eau claire wisconsin which um is kind of between the twin cities of minnesota and madison it's it's really near nothing but you know <laughs> it's a nice place i love i love you know Eau Claire, but it's not exactly a hub of uh you know people who are immersed in in the genre the writer sure. the writers here are uh more of the the literary persuasion yeah I was just gonna say i mean if anyone listening to this is in the Eau Claire area and knows any speculative fiction communities or resources or anything, you know maybe you could uh let Charles know about it because uh, you know. <laughs> You see, he seems like he seems like a very nice person, and uh, he's doing he's doing all right. He's in best American fiction and fantasy. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't need you. I take I take that yeah. I take that all back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, when we were talking about the reviewing, I mean, I, I honestly think, like you know, we've talked about this on the show before. How uh, how I felt like I feel like if uh, if anybody could read Slush for a magazine or something, like that's the best thing you could do for your for your, to level up your writing. Uh, I mean, you know, Clarion's great, but it's like you know. If you just like dive into a slush pile and get the experience of reading the way your editor reads and, and having to get through just that sheer quantity of stories like that, um, it's like it just, you just can't help but like learn so much through osmosis. And I feel like that's probably what uh, reviewing is, uh, done for Charles as well. Uh, like, you know, when you were asking him earlier, it's like he couldn't really, you know, pinpoint like, oh yes, like I consciously think of this and this and this because of reviewing. It's like, well, no, it's cause it's like, it's, it's osmosis. It's like you just, you absorb the, the, the the lessons from from doing the analysis of the stories um and so uh yeah he doesn't need any thinking workshops he's got his <laughs> that's, that's all he needs and i think that's actually a really good point i mean workshops are really helpful for some people but they're definitely not for everyone um for a variety of reasons either because of accessibility or because of you know personality not being a good fit or whatever it is um you know there are a lot of different ways to get get to um you know the end goal of, of writing so um, you know, I, I had a really good experience at Clarion, but not everybody does. Um, and also, you know, not everybody wants to. So there are a lot of ways to get to where you're going. Not everyone wants to have a good experience? No, not everyone wants <laughs> to go to the workshops. Oh, all right. I assume that the people who go like, do want to have a good just, experience. There's some very but... misanthropic people who just show up at the workshop just in, in determined to have a better <laughs> No, no, I, that, that is not really a thing. Um, I, I do I do definitely recommend the people uh, to people who want to do the workshopping to, to go for it because it's a good experience for, for many people. But, it, you know, it, there's also sort of an ongoing discussion in the community about, you know, sometimes people push the workshops a little bit too hard and, you know, mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, they just don't work for everyone. Um, and so I did want to say, you know, point out that, yeah, it's really not for everyone and there are other ways to get to where you're going. So, yeah. Well, so Carol, let me... No, I would Oh, I would just so I would also clarify that I, I don't discourage anyone from choosing to go to. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Just they don't feel like uh, you don't necessarily need to if you can figure out other ways around it. Like, like you know, Charles has his reviewing thing. You could also review short stories, and then maybe you could <laughs> achieve the same lessons. But um, yeah, I mean, I wrote a whole article about uh, all the different workshops, and Dave has gone to like every one. So uh, you know, obviously, we we believe in workshops. If that's the decision you that, that that's the choice you want to make, it's uh, it's a perfectly valid. Sure, one. sure, absolutely. Not necessary. We respect we respect your choices. 
Yes. Uh, well, well, so, um, Carol, let me put the same question to you I, I put to Charles earlier. Are there any of these stories in this book that you just had any observations about or just do you have any observations about the this group of stories as a whole or anything? I mean, one of the things that I really loved about the book was um, just the, the sheer variety of it. I felt like there were so many different perspectives represented in the stories and a lot of really cool ideas. Um I thought that there were some um, some interesting sort of common themes presented in different ways. So there were, you know, several different stories that, that addressed loneliness, for instance, um, coming at it in different ways, um, you know, be it from, you know, Cadwell's story that we had touched on a little bit um, about the, you know, the monster who is lonely. Um, and then there are, um, you know, uh, Maria Devana Headley's story, The Orange Tree, there's the... Uh, the golem is um, is also lonely, um, and they're very, very different perspectives. But you know, returning to the same idea of of loneliness and how you try to reach out. Um, and then you know, there were also several stories that looked at programming um, on, more on the science fiction side. Um, you know, there were many different representations of either human intelligence or artificial intelligence where they were limited by programming in various ways and tried to work around it. Um, and so you get different, different perspectives on some of the same ideas. Um, but there was this great variety in the book, which I really loved. I guess one sort of interesting thing I noticed was that you had um, the greatest one-star restaurant in the whole quadrant and tasting notes on the varietals mm -hmm. of the Southern coast, which both prominently deal with like food slash wine yeah. in a, fantasy and science fiction context i don't know if uh, if there was like a lot of food people were thinking about food a lot this year or anything <laughs> did you notice any food trends food, food, I didn't food notice any... or anything <laughs> yeah no i didn't notice any trends uh i will say about the the tasting notes on the variety varietal of the southern coast i so my wife works at my wife is christy ant uh, she's a writer and editor um she also works part-time at a tasting room and our friend also works at a, he's the manager of the tasting room and so, you know, they talk about wine all the time, you know, and it's like, um, it's like, and here I have found this amazing story that's in the best of the year. Um, and it's about wine and it's a fantasy story. And I couldn't get, uh, our friend, uh, the tasting room manager to read it. And it's like, man, I, 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 it's like these people really know how to, how to, you know, uh, put a knife to the gut of a, of an editor. You know, it's like, it's like, oh no, I found something that's perfect for you. You should totally read it. It's a short story. It'd only take you like 30 minutes to read it. It's like, and, but no, they don't read <laughs> it. Is he hostile to SF? No, no, I know he loves it. Um, that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, maybe he just hasn't gotten around to it. Maybe he will. I, I know he did, um, he did take one of the best Americans on his uh, trip to Italy and he was reading it, um, in Italy. So that was cool. Uh, but, uh, I just, I just thought it was funny that, like, he wasn't immediately excited about the fantasy wine story. Maybe he's just sick of wine. I mean, that's what he does all day. He's like, I don't want to yeah, hear about yeah. any wine. I get home and I want to read about something else, you know? Yeah, yeah. Probably. I will say of the food stories in here, I've never read a collection of food stories like this that made me completely uninterested in the food. So between, <laughs> um, between Greatest One Star Restaurant and, uh, Maureen McHugh's Cannibal Acts, um, yeah, right. which was also sort of a food story. Um, <laughs> I usually I read food stories and I'm hungry and that was really not the case here. <laughs> I feel like actually cannibals are having a moment <laughs> in the zeitgeist. Uh, and I don't know if that's, uh, if that's a result of our uh, dystopian state that we're in. And so 
people are thinking like, hey, cannibalism is not that bad. Um, but, uh, you know, so there's Marine Story and then, uh, I read a couple this year, uh, and I, uh, I just, uh, I bought, I bought one for an upcoming anthology and I bought one for Lightspeed and then I bought one for Nightmare. And then I, I feel like I've seen some that were written by, you know, that other editors publish as well. Um, so it's just kind of a, a weird confluence thing where it's like, I wasn't expecting that. Well, it's funny too because the the greatest one star restaurant in the whole quadrant is a a fairly light hearted story. I mean, it's sort of um to me to my mind, it's sort of a Robert Shackley vein, you know, with the sort of funny <laughs> robot kind <laughs> of story. Um, but it is grueling to read. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, it, it's yeah, it's 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 really like, and I'm 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 kind of a wimp when it comes to sort of gross kind of stuff. And yeah, <laughs> I, I I definitely had to. <laughs> Had to push through some of the uh, the gross out stuff in that story. Yeah, there are some gory moments in there, but uh, but compared to some of the other pieces in the in the book, it is one of the lighter, more humorous stories, also, which is an interesting juxtaposition. Uh, wait, who was laughing hysterically? Was that Charles? Who was <laughs> laughing hysterically a moment yes. ago? Well, what's, what's right. so funny? I feel like so much of the, the <laughs> darkness comes from the way that it's sort of presented in this sort of upbeat fashion where it's just like it's so viscerally dark because there's just this sort of like the way that it chases after the the positive review is just like the the you know staring straight for the cliff guard over it bursting into flames and just still smiling through it all just like wow <laughs> Yeah, so I guess I'll, I should explain. So the premise basically is that there's this ship of cyborgs who are, they're mostly robots, but they have sort of um, biological components for specialized functions. And they're, they're fleeing, they're escaping from um, confinement in a, you know, sort of forced labor in a, um, uh, a human uh, tourist resort or something or casino or something like that. And, um, and due to like, uh, circumstances, they have to start posing as a food service vessel and they have to start chopping up parts of their biological um, sections of their body and, and cooking them and serving them to people. And then they, they you know, their functions degrade, um, you know, the, the more they cut out of themselves. And, and so, yeah, it is a sort of like, like squeamish sort of story. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually kind of an interesting, it was on this one, right? Yeah. So um, in the author's note, Rachel K. Jones says, Late stage capitalism often requires you to offer yourself up for consumption as the price of success, especially in any customer facing career from artists to fast food servers. And not only are you required to make yourself part of the product, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to thank the customer for the privilege. Um, while it sounds undesirable, the reward system can be tough to escape. We all want that five star rating, even if we want to pretend that we don't. Um, so Charles, what do you think about that? Do you feel like you're, um, serving yourself up for consumption when you, uh, <laughs> write these stories <laughs> sometimes there's there's an element of this this idea that um sort of you're you're gamifying yourself you know you're, you're making it into this thing that um you get more and more invested in and not necessarily getting more and more back out of it because it sort of uh there's there's perhaps a pressure to sort of like go all in with um writing and being like being a writer i, I will put in air quotes because you can't see me um <laughs> but especially like being uh, on social media and things like that the sort of like expectation of presence that can be there for people and the sort of like constantly being on then and sort of like constantly performing writing 
while being a writer is something that I do feel it, it exists and is out there because you you do get the feeling then or there's there's a sense that that can be tied to your success like if you're not out there performing writing you're not considered a writer no one's going to know who you are no one's going to want to buy your stories uh, which isn't often helpful because while it can can help uh knowing people or or sort of having uh connections in that way sort of like um going to to clarion might give you some some professional connections that you wouldn't have otherwise or being, you know, connecting on Twitter with someone might make them more likely to to remember your name or something like that. I, you know, for a lot of people, it it takes so much effort to sort of do that sort of thing to to try and and perform and gamify this process. To sort of like you're so desperate to to quote unquote win, you know, to to be the successful writer that sometimes the process of trying to be a successful writer can hinder your you know, ability to actually get words down on, on, uh, you know, in your, I, I almost said on paper, but I don't use paper. <laughs> so, um, so I do feel like that, that happens. And so that's something that does sort of speak to me. Well, and things have changed so much. I mean, when I was a kid, my favorite author was Robert Asprin, and you would just read the author bio and it said, like, Robert Asprin has written such and such and such and such. He lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that was 100% of the information that I had about my favorite author <laughs> or could obtain through any reasonable amount of effort. Um, and, and now that's, yeah, the situation has completely changed to, to the point that like so often your, um, you know, your feelings about an author's work gets completely overshadowed by what you know about them, you know, as a personality or whatever. Um, how about Carolyn? Do you feel like you're being, uh, your personality is being commodified for uh, I mean, public consumption? So social media does kind of have that effect. Yes. Um, I, I feel like I'm able to mostly do the writing without thinking too much about, um, you know, it being a commodity for, for people to, you know, do with as they will afterwards. But, um, but, you know, when you're online, there are those moments where you're like aware of how you are, kind of performing for people um, as much as you try not to. And it's one of those things where, yes, it can probably do some good things for you. But at the same time, if it's not na coming naturally to you, that's usually pretty apparent. So um, it's not really something that you can necessarily force particularly well either. Um, so it's, it's kind of a delicate balancing act because I do like interacting with people online. But at the same time, the performative element of it is not something that I'm particularly into. So, um, you know, finding those ways to just kind of be genuinely out there without, um, without performing for people is, it can be tricky sometimes. How do you feel about those vultures in the media with their author interview podcasts? <laughs> They're terrible, terrible vultures in the media. <laughs> Well, you you interview authors. You I said, do, right? I do. For, uh, um, magazine. Yes. No. Um, He's a self hating vulture. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No. Um, I mean, no. I mean, I think there are a lot of good things that happen, you know, on social media and um, you know, interacting with uh, people for interviews and podcasts and other things. Um, it just there's there's often this pressure to do just that little bit more to get that edge. Um, and as Charles was saying, you know, it can be very counterproductive sometimes in terms of you can devote your energy to that when you you really probably should just be writing do you have a lot of experience being interviewed as opposed to interviewing other people um you know i've done a, a fair number of print interviews um 
I believe, although I'm not sure, this is my first time being interviewed on a podcast. Awesome. So. Hmm. Um, yeah. How about Charles? Have you ever, how many interviews have you done in the past? Um, not too many. I, I think I did one that was like, uh, I Skyped into, uh, like a convention, but it was like an online convention. It was sort of strange. It was a great experience, but I think that was like one of the only times when I've been like dedicatedly interviewed. And certainly the only time that I was like interviewed, not on paper. I, I will occasionally like host interviews on my blog with some people, but normally it's just like, normally otherwise my, my experience has been like the author interview questions from the publication itself. So that's, right. that's about were, it. Were they, were they ever good questions? <laughs> so, <laughs> so sometimes, yes. Like I, I think that, um, occasionally do fine and i like reading some of them too um not uh it's not something i always go out of my way to do but sometimes it does like i think add to a story to hear certain things about it i i feel like it depends very much on the the interview questions and the story and how that all works together but i i did have a i think i had a very positive experience with with lightspeed with um, one of my stories that i sold there where i was i was really happy with how that interview turned out and i think it actually for people who read it might have uh deepened some of the stuff with the story Lightspeed is a fine fine publication everyone should subscribe <laughs> uh yeah actually so, so it's funny like sometimes i i feel bad about all the author spotlights and i wonder like you know oh does everyone just like think it's such a drag to answer these questions every time and I'm um, like, geez, has anyone ever not submitted a story to Lightspeed? Because they're like, ah, oh, if they buy it, they'll have to answer the damn <laughs> author spotlight questions. Let me send it somewhere else where they don't ask me all these stupid questions. Uh, I mean, probably not, but <laughs> um, it, it is a thought that's passed through my head. Well, I mean, my big sort of pet peeve with author interviews is when there's no indication that the interviewer is familiar with the author's work and they just ask questions that you could ask to any writer, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, do you, right. do you write with a pen or with a pencil kind of stuff? Like, <laughs> where do you get uh, your I ideas? Just, <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't see any value in that at all. Right. Um, all right. So let's see. Um, John, uh, do you have any, I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to say about We're we're running a little short on time here. Is there anything else you yeah. wanted to say? How is, um, I guess I wanted to ask you, what is sort of the status of best American science fiction and fantasy? Are uh, things looking bright for the future or like kind of what's going on uh, with that? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's looking good so far. Uh, we have two more volumes uh, signed up, you know, so I'm going to be doing the 2019 and 2020 ones for sure. And then, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, we have the guest editor picked for next year. I'm not allowed to announce it yet. Um, but uh, I will say I'll give you a hint. It's not much of a hint, admittedly. It, it is one of the authors who wrote one of the 80 stories that was in the first, uh, in the first four volumes of, of Best American. So somebody there in one of those table of contents. It's one of those authors. Which is actually less than that because there are some people who have appeared more than once. Right. Yeah. Cause there are several, several people who have had more than one story. So it's probably like 70 different authors or something. I don't know. I don't know how many people ever, uh, repeated. Um, off, off the top of my head. Um, but, well, you heard uh, it here first. It's one of those 70. Yeah. <laughs> it narrows it down by a bit. Headline, um, headline writers get ready. Yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, things are, things are looking good. Um, 
I, I will say one thing that the thing that's been most encouraging, honestly, uh, I was in New York uh, for New York Comic Con this year, as Dave knows, because I crashed at his place. <laughs> um, but uh, and watched his adorable cat. Um, so we had an event at New York Comic Con, and Nora Jemison was there, and Carmen Maria Machado was there, and Charlie Jane Anders, and um, I feel like there was one other person. Um. So anyway, somebody moderated it. Was, was it Matt? Oh, right. Well, Matt Kressel, Matt Kressel moderated it. And so then, anyway, there was a bunch of us there. And, uh, so, you know, we had this panel and I mean, New York Comic Con's like insanity. Um, you know, it's like a hundred, more than 150,000 people. I think it was 180,000 or something. And so I was expecting, you know, I, I wasn't expecting that much. You know, I was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, this, this little book, uh, probably most people haven't even heard of that go to this thing. I wasn't sure how many people were going to be there. Well, I mean, it was standing room only in the room and it was a pretty big room. And, and then the Comic-Con had uh, a signing queue right outside the panel. So like we would funnel out of the room. We would go to these tables where the strand was selling. The strand is a bookstore in New York. The strand was selling uh, copies of the book and copies of the um, other panel participants books. And, there was like a huge line, uh, and, and was there the entire time, you know, we were slated to sign, which was like for an hour. Um, so that was just like really encouraging to see that kind of, uh, response, uh, to the book. I mean, I think it, it, it was in large part due to Nora being, uh, you know, queen of the genre at the moment. Um, and, uh, um, but, uh, but I mean, it was just really nice to see uh, that kind of enthusiasm for a book of short stories. Um, you know. Even even amongst this convention of uh, you know mega media corporations and things and giant superhero movies and all that, well, and that that sort of turnout notwithstanding, you do note again in your intro that nobody's getting rich publishing short fiction, <laughs> right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like uh, the you know magazines uh, come up and disappear uh, every year. You know, I, I I believe I listed a couple of the the dearly departed in in the latest introduction. Um, and, uh, and again, for this year, I know, uh, there have been a couple things that, uh, just vanished without a trace. Um, it's kind of funny how sometimes there's not even a good buy. They just stop publishing. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, certainly, uh, very few of the publishers are, are really making any money doing it. And then, uh, you know, most of the writers are not getting particularly rich, uh, doing it either. Um, I mean, they, they, they'll get paid, but it's like the, the rates that they get paid that are, are not huge amounts. So it's like, yeah, nobody, uh, nobody's getting rich off doing this. Um, well, and, uh, yeah, well, and I do want to just let people know again, that John has a, a Patreon page that he set up. Oh yeah. So if you appreciate stuff like this best American science fiction and fantasy uh, series, you know, he could always use the support to, to be able to keep doing awesome stuff like this. Indeed. And if you want to, it's at patreon.com slash John Joseph Adams. Um, I mean, or, you know, I mean, anybody who wants to support anything, I mean, if you subscribe to Lightspeed or Nightmare, it's like all that stuff is great. You know, it's a great way to support short fiction and, and, uh, and ensure that I'll, I'd be able, I'm able to keep doing all this stuff. Um, and of course, for Best American, I mean, you know, you know, definitely buy the book, recommend it to a friend. Uh, if you, if you enjoy it, leave a review on Amazon or, or the like. Um, Amazon's really the most important one just because that's where, you know, most book purchases happen. Um, or at least where most reviews get seen. Um, because you know what? Anybody who is a, is a jerk <laughs> and really hates short stories or they think that all short stories need to fit this very narrow parameters or they hate anything that mentions 
um, any kind of uh, social justice issue or anything like that. Uh, those people have no compunctions whatsoever about going to Amazon and leaving a review. Um, and they'll leave you that one star review. Um, you know, barely, barely literate, uh, review, uh, doesn't really analyze anything, just, uh, calls it garbage and leaves you the one star and that's it. So, um, you know, so if you want to support things, like, that's an easy way, that's an easy free way for you to, to support short fiction. Like, you know, if you read the book and you like it, you know, go leave it a nice review. I mean, it can be a one sentence review. It's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're pretty much out of time. So just uh, let's get a final thought um, from our guest here. So Charles, do you have any just uh, any final thoughts here at the end that you want to throw in? Um, hmm. uh, hold on. Just what, what was what's this experience been like uh, having a story hmm. in Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy? Uh, strange. I mean, it's uh, incredibly like gratifying, I suppose, to sort of to to know that it connected with with people because uh, short fiction, you know. Touching on that that theme of loneliness, right? Writing short fiction can be can be fairly lonely when you're sort of geographically uh, isolated, and so to sort of get that that connection is is important and has been kind of mystifying for me, but great. Are you working on a Rivers Run Free novel now? <laughs> no, there is uh, another story that's set in in the same uh, world that will be coming out. Um, probably sometime this year. Uh, again, at Benicia Skies, but not the same characters, but the same setting. Uh, does it have a title? Um, tentatively, because Rivers Run Free. I don't think that, that wasn't an originally like it got published under the the current thing, but it was slightly different than the original title. So I would say tentatively, it's called Undercurrents. And you said later this year or later uh, in 2019 that's coming out? Uh, right. It should be sometime in 2019. All right, cool. Yes, everyone keep an eye out for that. And how about Carolyn? Uh, any final thoughts? Um, I was just so thrilled to be uh, sharing a table of contents with a bunch of authors that I really admire. Um, and these are just great stories with, I mean, so much variety. So it was really, it was really cool to be in here. Um, I'll put in a plug, I guess, for uh, for a story I've got coming out early early next year um, in Lightspeed, which is the Archronology of Love, which is my sort of archaeology of time story, where where characters are digging through time instead of through dirt. Um, and I I think that's coming out sometime in the spring in Lightspeed. Uh, cool. Yeah. And how about uh, John? Final thought. Uh, yeah, so if everyone's uh, throwing out plugs for things that are coming out in 2019, uh, if any of you listening to this enjoys uh, science fiction and fantasy short stories with those social justice issues that I mentioned earlier, uh, I have an anthology coming out in February called A People's Future of the United States, uh, which I co-edited with Victor Laval, um, coming out from One World, and it's chock full of all that stuff. Um, and it, as we were talking about, uh, very much full of stories that are reaction against the current dystopian hellscape that we live in <laughs> today. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And, uh, yeah, hope you enjoy it. All right. So we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Carolyn M. Yoakum, and Charles Pesewer. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Always good to be here. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Carolyn M. Yoakum, and Charles Pesewer for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Natalia Neuromancer, Christy Jewell, B. Warpaha, Liz56788, Tan Siemens, and Why Not Make the Crib Great. Natalia Neuromancer writes, All I want to listen to all day. 
In 2015, I stumbled across an old episode posted on YouTube, the Chuck Palahniuk episode, and have been listening ever since. The podcast has seriously been life-changing, opening my eyes to the world of science fiction and fantasy. If I ever make enough money, I will for sure become a Patreon, because I cannot imagine my Friday mornings without this podcast. So big thanks again to Natalia Neuromancer for that great review. And speaking of Patreon, I also want to give a special thank you to Lorenz Schwartz and Dale Morris, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I also want to give a special thank you to Adam Forrester and Rory Carroll, who both just made one-time contributions to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.